Hey everybody, we are uh, back again. It's Tuesday evening, seven o'clock. I'm gonna give you guys a second to hop in here. Um, we are here for Help Me Study the Bible, your favorite 30 minutes of the week, I'm sure. This week's gonna be a doozy, um, but I'm really excited. I wanna introduce you guys uh, to Scott Irwin. You know him and you love him, but we also have in the house today, not in the house, uh, by virtue of Skype, uh, one of my uh, former professors, uh, someone who's been uh, a Yoda for me, uh, Dr. Vince Baco. <laughs> wow. So, uh, Dr. Baco, thanks for uh, jumping on uh, our little Bible study here that we do with our church. I know uh, I've appreciated your insight and wisdom. Uh, we go back to a few uh, intensive courses that you taught uh, yes. while I did yes. my yes. master's at uh, Wheaton. And uh, yeah, it's just great to have you. How you doing? Good. Thank, thanks for asking to be here. I uh, wasn't really expecting like the Yoda introduction, the but, Yoda introduction? but I appreciate that. Uh, I, you know, I turned 55 on Friday, so maybe that's prop. Maybe it's just kind of just all connecting this week. You know, something about aging, you see. Aging. You know? If you if you turn your words backwards while we do this Bible study, it'll make you even more like Yoda. Uh, yeah. Right. You got hey, you got ten more years before you can't go to church per CDC guidelines. So good for you. Oh, oh yeah. You you're well under that cutoff. Uh, Want to say hey to Mike Adams? Uh, he's watching us. Hey Laura Wasco, it's good to see you guys. Uh, we got a bunch of people who have already piled in here, and so here's what I want to do. I don't want to waste too much time because it seems like people are showing up. Um, we are uh, looking at First Peter chapter three this week. Um, we've been just to remind you all and maybe Dr. Baycoat to catch you up to speed on what we're doing. Um, I want to give you sort of the lay of the land of what we're up to. And then I'm actually going to take a pause. I'm going to brag about you and tell people what um, our giveaways are for today. We'll have a little side conversation and then we'll dive into the text. And uh, we hopefully won't offend too many people today. That's not our goal. Our goal is to help you understand and read the Bible. So we've been going through First Peter. You guys at home, remember that we are doing this without commentaries. You're not allowed to Google things. You're not allowed to look things up in Bible software. Leave the books on the shelf. You and the text. Looking for the context of what has been said already and what is being said right now and what comes after what you're looking at in the moment. So today, though, we're looking at chapter three. We got to keep in mind things from chapter two and things from chapter one. But also, it helps us to look ahead to chapter four and chapter five. All of it's connected. Peter had a point. We want to know what that is. We're also looking at the structure. I'll confess today for First Peter chapter 3, I did a lot of contextual work to go, oh, he uses this phrase, this phrase, this phrase in many different places. But it wasn't until I put it all in structure that I was able to say, oh, this is how it works. And so we want to know how do transitional words work, how do repeated words work, how do his thoughts connect together, and where are the breaks? From there, we're gonna, we're gonna ask the question, what elements of the gospel is in view in this, um, in this passage? We're gonna ask the question as well, uh, what does this mean for my life? So uh, context, structure, develop the theme, understand the gospel, apply it. That's kind of what we're up to. Dr. Baco, that's what we're doing. And as someone who has studied the Bible for a long time, Goodness, I don't even know how many degrees you have, or you know, uh, I know you went to Trinity, so there's a. I know you. That's where you graduated with your PhD. Uh, uh, that's my MDiv, actually. Your MDiv. Oh, where'd you where'd you do your doctorate? Well, you see, that one right there points to Drew. 
University. <laughs> I got to I got to make your your thing better. Oh, there is that right. in New Jersey? <laughs> Drew, Drew University in New Jersey? Yeah, yeah. 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 Beautiful place. Cool. Yeah. So, you you've spent a lot of time uh, studying the Bible. Uh, that outline that I just gave. How would you uh, help people at home who are you know, we've got um, a couple of people who are stay-at-home moms. We've got high school principal uh, watching right now. What's up, Jim? Good to see you, man. Glad you could uh, log in. Jim and I have been uh, emailing back and forth about Bible study stuff a ton lately. Hey, uh, Debbie. You guys got a lot of people who are at home who often think they need a professional to help them know the Bible. You are a professional by virtue of working at an institution, spending all your days thinking about Christian life, scripture those things is is it really that simple or is there something more that needs to be added to that uh it's clear enough that the big picture of the text should be accessible to us Um, but part of the reason for having the church and having leadership is to help form people so that people so we're helping people to have good habits uh when it comes to reading the text so that people, for example, you mentioned context, so that people think about the fact that there's a context and don't just think there was Jesus and then there's my life today. So, um, so I think it's you know you, you, you need we, we need the formation of the church, but uh, you know part of the reason we're Protestants, right, is because it, you know the idea about the, the basic clarity of yeah. Scripture, right. So, so even if you can't you know I don't understand quite what this phrase means, you ought to be able to say what the big picture is. Yep. We're definitely going to be able to have a few moments where we today are going to go, we can't exactly pinpoint what this verse exactly means. But I think we're going to walk out of today with a a sense of saying, but here's what Peter was getting at. Here's the big picture. So, uh, Dr. Baco, tell us a little bit about, um, I I shared a little bit about your bio on our last week's uh, episode. you are the director of uh, the Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College. Uh, what does that entail? Um, and, and maybe share a little bit about that. All right. So in addition to my other job being a professor, uh, yeah. uh, I direct this case. That's an acronym for it. Uh, and basically what we do is try to help people with moral formation on campus and beyond. So we put on events uh, like many of which were canceled uh, after March. Uh, uh, but, but the goal is to try to help people to think about well, I say, a living faith. Because really, I think there's sometimes an unfortunate disconnect between what Christians believe and how they think about how that belief informs their moral decision-making. For many Christians, it wants to be kind of ad hoc. So hopefully we're helping people to put it together a little bit better. Yeah. You wrote a book. Uh, this I, I ordered a case of these books to um, provide as giveaways. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, here's a little secret. I haven't read this book yet, and I've always wanted to read this book, and I've never had time to read this book until now. So I'm going to bless everybody pos- else and oh, yeah. keep a copy for myself, and I'll send it to you to get signed later. But here's the book. Uh, it's called The Political Disciple. Uh, you wrote this as a part of... Um, I don't remember the the series that uh, a bunch of you guys from Wheaton. Ordinary Theology Series. It says right there on the cover. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Yeah. Green helped with the editing of that. But this is your, um, I don't know. I, every time I uh, hear you speak or have uh, seen you speak somewhere, this book comes up as like your um, best known work right now. 
can you give us a couple uh, just snippets of, of what uh, the main thesis of, of Political Disciple is? And I want people to know, um, here's how, you're going to be able to win a copy of this book, and almost all of you are going to have a chance to win a copy of this book. Uh, and I will deliver them to your homes sometime in the next week because it's cheaper than Amazon if I drive to your house. <laughs> Uh, but give us a little snapshot of uh, The Political Disciple. Uh, so The Political Disciple is basically thinking about how, I mean, what faith and life. So how does what we believe orient us toward living with fidelity in God's world, particularly uh, related to questions of political concerns, including, well, why should we be involved in politics to begin with? But then thinking about how do some of the things that we believe actually orient us toward having certain postures and commitments? Um, again, I, I think that um, uh, this isn't exactly what Christians are known for right now. Mm. Uh, I think it's. I think it wants to be more ad hoc, like I said, more, more uh, just a random sort of, you know, you almost making it up together, as you right? go along. Yeah, yeah. And that political. Uh, meaning more of the use of power and the investment in uh, society, or are we talking political parties? Uh, political, as in engagement in the world in general, of which political life is part of that. Um, it's not specific about political parties because it's not because politics isn't just about being a member of a particular party. It's really a way of thinking about how we manage our life outside of our homes together, if you think about it that way. Yeah. And so uh, so what were some ways that we can be thinking about that and how, you know, doc, I mean, the four doctrines in the book that, you know, creation, your view of Jesus, your view of the Holy Spirit and your eschatology, how, how do those help you to be oriented, uh, hopefully towards greater fidelity to God when you're engaged politically? That's awesome. Okay, so here's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it sounds like that book should be like 2,000 pages, but it's mercifully not. It's short. And so um, I've got a bunch you, of copies. It's in two hours, I'll bet. I pro yeah, probably. Ooh, Actually, challenge. Yeah, <laughs> challenge accepted. So here, here, here's how you win this, guys. Um, what I want you to do after today's session, you can't win it now. You need to go to the Bethel Facebook page, um, our Hobart Portage Facebook group, where you're watching this right now. I want you to drop a comment. Um, start your own comment on the page, and I want it to. I want you to tell people here's one of the takeaways that you've gleaned out of your reading from First Peter, chapters one, two, or three. I have a determined number of copies, uh, and I will also be giving away a grand prize. Now, grand prizes from someone who's the son of Warren Wearsby happen to be a lot of Warren Wearsby books. Uh, <laughs> however. This is how it works. Dr. Vago, this is how it works, right? I mean, goodness, it's shameless. And so um, I know I'm telling you no commentaries, but uh, I want to give away uh, another copy of uh, my grandpa's book called Disciplines and Delights in Bible Study. And it's just a very simple, easy, accessible book that'll help you read any book of the Bible uh, on your own. And I'm also going to sweeten the pot here because my grandpa wrote a uh, commentary on every book of the Bible. And then there's a really great condensed version. It's just the, the, it's the Old Testament and the New Testament in one, one um, package, two volumes, one package. And that's going to be our grand prize today. You're going to want Dr. Baycoat's book because you can actually read it and it'll be helpful to you in this season of life. And then you're going to put my grandpa's book on the shelf. That's how this is going to work. But 
we got to have a grand prize so that we feel like there's something going on here. So after this is over, drop a comment on our Facebook group, and then I'm going to kind of work through randomly and uh, select a few winners. Um, I'll tell you this. I've got at least enough copies for 10 people to be um, blessed today. So uh, I hope that you'll share the wealth of what you've learned. Dr. Bako, do you have time to dig into the text with us a little bit? All right. Yes. Because, awesome. Because there's nothing more controversial than First Peter three. The beginning. <laughs> well, the end, well, it's all chapter two. Like, there, yeah. There's a controversy there too. So, but, <laughs> but especially around atonement uh, recent in recent years. But, but yes. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, there, there are a couple of things that are controversial depending upon how you think about it in chapter three. You know, whether you're talking about the beginning or the end. (laughs) I have less of a problem with the beginning. Um, My wife would tell me that's because I'm a man. Yeah. Uh, And so I don't want to I don't want to treat this uh, a couple verses as if they're a lightning rod. But I have, as a pastor, dealt with the aftermath of some bad applied theology that women have um, been taught. And wives particularly have been used in these verses to... um, perhaps justify bad behavior of husbands. And so what I want to do is just look at the text and let's just take it apart. And I think many of you at home uh, have looked at this, have wrestled with it. My hunch is you probably spent more time on the first six verses trying to figure that out than you did maybe everything else. Um, But Scott, the first thing we see here is is the phrase in the same way, right? And so that's a callback to what? That's chapter two. Um, Chapter two goes all the way back to uh, we, we said last week that uh, we think verses 11 and 12 are possibly Peter's main point. Again, mm-hmm. hypothesis, we're just reading through it, trying to get these clues. Um, and he says, um, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly, fleshly lust, which weighs war against your soul. The word soul seems to be important to Peter. Um, and then he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they Uh, slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds that's super important as they observe them also important glorify god in the day of visitation i threw on here um the title that you know even in exile live holy for god and holy living will be your best defense and witness to help others see god that was just my kind of in the moment of bible study thinking like i think this is what he's saying i think this is what it means and so here, having read that verse, we get back to chapter three, verse one, and we have in the same way. But in the same way is referencing something that came after verse uh, 12 and 13. It's um, Peter's command or uh, encouragement towards servants, servants honoring and respecting uh, their masters, even the ones who are unjust. Um, so it says, in the same way, you wives, and then notice this, be submissive to your own husbands. This is a callback to um, servants obey your masters. There, there is a, um, a role at play in which there's this um, relationship described and there's um, some sort of deference that's to be played. And here's why. It's not just be submissive to your own husbands, period. It's be submissive to your own husbands so that, and then notice the couching language that Peter gives even if any of them. So like in a world where maybe one of your husbands is not a believer in the word of God, 
And then he does wordplay, and I love when apostles are poetic. He says, they may be one without a word. So if they don't believe the word of God, they'll be one even without that word. It doesn't take the word for them to be won over by the behavior of their wives. And then again, if I kind of pull us back to that main theme verse in chapter two, I see because of your good deeds as they observe them. All of that language is present again in this context to wives. And then they say, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Um, Dr. Bakel, uh, if you studied theology and studied the um, pastoral epistles, you're familiar with the phrase household codes, right? Mm-hmm. Can you, I mean, off the top of your head, give us a little bit about how the household codes work? Um, because this is a part where we're not having commentaries to help us. We might miss what Peter is doing in his organizational structure. Is there anything you can just help pile on uh, to help us understand this a little bit more? Yeah, well, two well, two things. One is, it's good sometimes to think about when you're reading the Bible that, remember that the first readers didn't have chapter and verse divisions. Yeah. And so, and so this is in the flow of everything else that's being said. Yep. Uh, so because, because this can be set off from other things. Uh, and then when it comes to the household codes thing, I mean, just like in any culture, there's there's presumptions about what roles are. Now, and I think, but, but I think what's also important when you think about household codes is household codes for this audience where they're basically in an exilic type of situation where they're kind of up against it, right? And the presumption of the way that he's writing this about wives and then the husbands is if it's about you're living among aliens, I mean, then part of what we need to be assuming is maybe even assuming that maybe at least half of these people don't have a spouse that's actually a part of this. And sure. so yeah. if you don't have a spouse that's a part of this, then how are you supposed to operate about this? So, th- so this is operating in a way where, just as he says earlier in chapter two, don't act like because Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, that then you can just go make yourself odious you know, politically. So why would, so same thing in terms of the way that you're going to operate in the context of your household, where, you know, this is the first century. This is not, you know, like the second half of the 20th century with, with more people working out of the house. I mean, yes, you had people, women who worked, et cetera, but, but this, you know, this isn't everybody, you expect all the women to go to college, et cetera. Very, very different type of context. So, we have to think about where this is and it's a context where, you know, if these, if these husbands leave their wives, most of them are going to be probably destitute women, right? It's, it's, what's, going to, it's what's going to happen to them. Uh, and in that kind of context, you, you do have an expectation that there's a certain hierarchy in the household. Um, but it's important to not presume that hierarchy by definition means oppression. I think that, that because you can, you can have oppression, that happens in the context of hierarchy doesn't mean there's guaranteed to be the expression of hierarchy in uh, oppression in hierarchy. I think that's important because um, there's enough people who behave badly to give the assumption that if you see a hierarchy, it must be a situation where you're just waiting for all the stories about oppression and abuse to show up. So you can't make that assumption here, right? Uh, I mean, th- th- this is just what what the structure was. Yeah. So, so you can't. So, so we we had to be, we had to be asking. Okay, well, what was life like then? 
right? And what 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 was expected behavior between wives and husbands? Uh, and then what is is it that's going to be distinctive about being Christian in the way that you operate as a spouse amid those things? Yeah, I I think that's so good. We look at just what Paul, what Peter is coming out of in verse thirteen. Uh, it's looking at all these different human institutions. And so one of these human institutions is marriage. We look at, at marriage and it was contextualized very differently in the first century marriage was. Uh, but I, I appreciate that explanation, Dr. Baycoat, because I think it helps us continue to drill down to the theme and then look at other ways that we can apply this. So there are human institutions today that this basic theme of being subject um we, you know, that wouldn't have come around in the first century. So you look at like being subject to your boss. This is a, this is a human institution. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to peel away those layers of the onion in order to get to that, that principle that then lets us contextualize this in our own time. And right. Uh, you're right. Marriage was so different, so different right then. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the fact that you have a word, be submissive to your, your, your husband is here is, you know, the same thing he's talking about, you know, we talking about slaves Right, or he's talking about them in general in relationship to the government. And the point is, you know, there were people who were relatively good to, to their slaves and people who treated their slaves like dirt. Yeah. Same thing with, you know, the case of, of households. And so, at, at one level, you know, if there's the specter of suffering that's going on, and you know, and and because this goes on further in the chapter, the same kind. Of, I mean, it's, it's throughout the book, really. You know, um, you know, don't give people a reason, you know, to invite suffering, as if suffering's redemptive, right? You know, I mean, sometimes people you know, we make we make yeah, you're mart- right, martyrs into heroes, you know, because they stood up, etc. The Bible is not telling everybody now. The way for you to be faithful is to make sure you invite martyrdom at every chance. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's that, that's that's exactly the opposite of what he is saying here. He's actually saying, "Look, there's no reason for you to be a rabble rouser. Mm. Be be a person of integrity, you know, in the various you know roles in society that you have, and so and so that your that your conduct is is a, is characterized by a certain kind of integrity." Uh, regardless of what everybody else is doing. And so the big point there then is, um, wives, if your husband is not a believer, that's the, that's the situation that he's talking to. You may feel like you're in exile both in the context of the world that you live in, but also in the context of your own home. That you're, you're not just up against it with your neighbors or the people who are pushing you towards... Um, you know, worshiping the emperor, but you're up against it from your own husband. And so Mm. the point there is not win them with an argument, but win them with the gracious good deeds of someone who is like Christ, not going to push back when they're reviled, but instead going to allow their good. um, He's going to say this later in the chapter, but not just your good behavior, but also your good conscience to be the thing that drives you and drives them to see, um, to see uh, God's glory in the midst of this. And I think it's important to understand that submission does not mean, you know, a vow of silence, no conversation, no opinion, etc. Right? So, so people project all these things onto the text, 
rather, you know, it, it, because they see the word there, so they, they assume they know what that means. It's like, well, you know, especially if you, if you go on and see what he says in three, right? Now he's saying, you know, don't make an argument out of it. But like you said, you know, th- this is what, you know, whether St. Francis said, you know, uh, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Apparently he didn't. Uh, but but th- this is one of those situations where he's saying, let your character be the thing that does the proclamation so that they see that, again, just like what's in the prior verses, there's something about the way you're operating as a person with a certain kind of character that's telling you about this allegiance to Jesus. And also, let's say that there's some of these people are the wives of political officials. Okay, so are you are you disloyal to to you know are you going to be trying to you know foment rebellion here because of this King Jesus that you said well he's going to live forever don't know about your emperor right I mean so <laughs> is, is, is is that the kind of thing I mean, so so he's saying don't this is not what you need to be doing is making trouble mm. by people reason to suspect it's like they already suspect that you might be not with the program because your allegiance is to Jesus and not to Caesar. And so, so should, should a wife be inviting suspicion by mm. like, I don't need to treat you with respect because you worship a false God. I worship the true God. Mm. So, so you have to think about it in that context, not okay. You know, she needs to just like do what I say. That, that's I think that's really missing it, you know, because, again, if it's in the flow of the larger context, it's about your conduct. When people might think that the fact that you belong to God makes you someone who's going to push against what what's already had, you know, somewhat keeping society in place. Mm, yeah. Are you are you, are you going to be a disturber of the peace because you belong to Jesus? Right. So. Um, one of our great friends, Carm, just asked the question, and yeah. she um, she's suggesting. I think this is the way you wrote this, Carm. I'm thinking you're suggesting this is like a way to say it, and also asking, you know, begging the question of like, is this right? Um, because I want to look at those words in verse four, um, and and the word comes up. Let it be that you know don't don't adorn yourself from the externals, um, <laughs> braiding of hair, wearing of gold, jewelry, putting on dresses. Um, speculations abound of whether or not that's prostitute dress, but uh-huh. in desert island Bible study, I can't get there. Okay, I just right now I just can't make that leap. But let it be the hidden person of the heart. And again, this goes back to First uh, Peter one twenty two um, of loving one another from the heart, from this genuine place, uh, with the imperishable. That's another word that has shown up a couple times. First Peter one four. We have an imperishable inheritance. First um, Peter um, uh, one twenty three. Uh, we have a um, uh, the seed. seed of the word is imperishable. And then right here we have imperishable qualities of our character. Um, Peter's kind of weaving this this um, endurance in the midst of an uncertain time type of a thing. The imperishable quality of then he gives these two words, gentle and quiet spirit. Now, I did a quick nerdy word study on spirit. Uh-huh. Like 95% of the time that that word pneumatos 
in spirit comes up, it's Holy Spirit. A couple times, it's just your inward spirit, the spirit in you. Mm. And Uh we would have to get a little bit more specific here in our exegesis. That's like drawing the meaning out of the text, out, Uh uh, ex, and then Uh Jesus is the text, right? Or the the, Uh the words. Um, We'd have to be a little bit more um, uh, surgical to really get down to it. Um, but Carm is, is suggesting, and maybe she hits it on the head. She said, is this just a non-argumentative spirit? That was her, um, mm. her, her way of putting it, a non-argumentative spirit. What do you think about that? And how would you recommend we at home kind of get to the core of some of these words? Yeah. Well, so what, what I would say first is, is think about again, wh- what's the big, wh- what is he trying to, to tell them here? Right. Is the point is the main point here? Now this is exactly what your code is for attire, right? I don't think that's no. The point is, you know, you can be as flashy and spectacular as you want externally, but that's that's not going to be the thing that's going to win someone over. And again, in keeping with what he's trying to get them to be in this context, the point is to be a person of a certain kind of character. So you have to be thinking about, okay, how's this part of the larger thing that he's saying? And then in that context, while I would say from a theological point of view, you can say, well, because this person is made alive by the Spirit, and this is going to make them a particular kind of person. That's a, that's a true theological claim, but that would be, I think, forced into this mm. text, because you're, you're talking about a disposition here, yeah, right? And... So it, it, it's just being a person of a certain posture, disposition, you know, as, as opposed to being of a boisterous spirit, a confrontational spirit, or, or I don't think this is the point, but a seductive spirit, right? Sure. Um, so so the, the, the contrast is, you know, um, if you think about, you know, putting it on so to speak in verse three right because you know braiding gold jewelry probably you know is is this thing of of trying to make a production of something right which so well that speaks loudly rather than you know let let it be just the person that you are no matter what your attire is that is communicating you know who, who you are who you belong to what what your integrity is so as opposed to making it about the external so i i love you tell you know encouraging us to keep the big view in mind um because if we look ahead to verse 15 there is this encouragement for us to sanctify christ as lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense for anyone who gives a account for your hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence and I think yes. the point of that is Paul, uh, Peter is always telling us, and we, we've got this, um, as the one who called you is holy, be holy, for I am holy. As Christ did, so we should do. And I think yeah. the example that he keeps going back to with the servants is, for Christ did this. Yes. For, the, for the wives, he goes back to Genesis 18. He says, for this is how the women of old, the holy women uh, of old, we could even impose that word sanctified, the, like the, the set-apart women who were chosen by the Lord of old. They did this in honoring and submitting themselves to their husbands. 
Um, that is a fascinating thing. I don't think we have time to to like mm-hmm. dig into Genesis 18, although I wish we we did. Um, but mm-hmm. I think to your point, it is a um, Christ-like attitude that he is calling out of these women. It's nothing other than being like Christ, to be gentle and have a quiet mm-hmm. spirit. Um, I mean, we see that verse 18 to the end. We also see that at the end of chapter 2, um, uh, where uh, he... Um, he uttered no threats, verse 23. Right, right, um, right. right. Even, have, even this, that, that has to be, going back to chapter 2, it's important there to people to understand that that doesn't mean that, you, that there's never any setting where you speak your opinion. But the, the situation where, again, you know, there, this text suggests that some of them are under threat of people bringing the heat at some point and bringing the heat like with like physicality. Um, what are you going to do in that situation, right? Um, and so, in that sense, you know, yes, you know, Jesus is the one that that, that sort of he, he's your example. But it, it's not somehow, make, you know, again making the making the objective to court suffering. Mm. Oh, right. uh, so, I, nor by the way, does it sanction the reception of violence from other Christians. Because some people use that text in chapter 2, or they think that that text in chapter 2, because it's related to the atonement, and then what's here in chapter 3, that this uh, that this creates uh, a specter of the possibility of abuse uh, within the church. And th- this is why it's so important to emphasize that, what's his point here? His point is how you're, op- how you're dealing with the way that non-Christians are coming at you. And might come at you with offense. This is not an excuse within a church for any Christian male or any Christian female. Anyway, to, 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 no abuse of children, no abuse of spouses, or anything like that. I think it's really important to say that because there are ways that people read this, and if they're not thinking about the fact that he's giving them guidance, like for, for that key verse that you emphasize, verses eleven and twelve. If you keep that in mind, it's obvious that what he's not talking about there is, and this is how you should do it. When you're all Christians, you know, just take the punishment when you've got an abuser in the church. No cares. Jesus received the greatest abuse of all from his father. So you go ahead and take it, too. Yeah. That's not the point. You just right? gave some and, of our friends PTSD because they literally just left that type of church five days ago. So, uh, so <laughs> that, but, but there are so many people yeah. that have heard these verses used mm. in the context of familial relationships from chapter two into chapter three, where this is where this is somehow giving cover to abusers. There is no cover for abusers here. The yeah. only abusers in mind here are people that are not Christians that are trying to go after you because you're a Christian. Exactly. Not because you are a family member or something like that. So, so, and of course, the funny thing about about this entire context with Sarah, etc., is when people get concerned about this, it's like. I mean, is, is, is verse 7 in disappearing ink or something? I mean, because, uh, I mean, you know, verse 7 is pretty intense. Yeah. You can tell. Yeah. yeah. So so if, if you've yeah. got verse 7 there, how in the world can there be any specter of, of a Christian who's the male towards a female, whether she's Christian or not, to, to mistreat them? Right. I mean, there is just there, there's a there's no cover there. There's no escaping there. So 
I think I think it's important. We, 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 you've got to keep all of that together because he's, he's turning his attention to wives. He turns his attention to husbands, and and it's under the umbrella of that larger trajectory about you know being Christ-like people. I think, by the way, on the Sarah to Abraham thing, you know, I think part of this is at least part of this audience is, are, are Jewish are Jewish converts, right? It might be Jews and Gentiles together. We've so had this debate. Yes, we, we landed last week where you just said, yeah. So, so, so if, if, you, if you have a mixed audience, which would make sense because they're in a diaspora type of situation, yeah. then, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, you're in this trajectory where Christ is the culmination of this promise to Abraham, etc. So you're, if you're saying, if, you, if you're going back to Sarah, it's like you're going back to the beginning of the covenant. And saying, look, we have a plan for all of this. And you got this first couple. Look, I mean, you know, if you will, the, the covenantal matriarch, you know, uh, then, you know, it's like, it's like, wouldn't you want to be like her? Mm. Right? So, so and, and of course, if they actually go back and read about her, they'd also notice that, by the way, she was not a person lacking in agency. No. And so this is the yeah. thing. If you go back and read Genesis 18, we're going to go there. We're just going to go there. <laughs> no. read Genesis 18. It's a fascinating um, account. And yeah. Sarah is actually chided by God for having her opinion. And, and she laughs when the Lord says, you know, next time this year, you're going to have a son. And she laughs. And then the Lord says, did you just laugh? She goes, no, I didn't laugh. And she goes, he goes, no, but you did laugh. That's exactly what he says. And, and then yeah. Peter pulls this and he puts it right yeah. here. And then so. In Genesis 18, after that exchange, um, the Lord has this dialogue and says, should we show Abraham what's going to become of all of this? Because we've chosen him to be the father of a great nation. That's kind of where it's left off in Genesis. Peter pulls that one little line that she says about calling Abraham, my Lord. How is this going to happen to me? Um, I'm old. I'm worn out, she says. And my Lord, my husband He's old too. Right. He ain't no spring chicken. How could this be? And so Peter's pulling on those words and he drops that in. But then he turns it to the, the wives living in this diaspora. And he says in verse seven, um, just as, or six, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And then he says, and you have become her children. If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So he's almost saying, the, the covenantal promises that God gave to Abraham to be the father of many nations are fulfilled by faith in Christ when you, on account of him, develop Christ-like convictions and character to be able to stand up for what is right. You're being just like her, and you're fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 18, the moment that she laughed and said, how could this be? You're proving right. in the first century what God promised centuries before. It's this mind-blowing, yeah. like, amazing, amazing thing. has nothing to do with the fact that women are doormats. It doesn't. And if you read the text, you don't get that sense at all. So, right. Um, all right. That's not controversial in the least anymore. Thank you well, for clearing that up for us. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Laura Waska is doing a really good job of maybe tracking through this. And she is typing in all caps. So I just want to uh, yeah. give a shout out. Yeah, I saw that. Go for it. <laughs> Yeah, just the the joint heirs. Uh, this section in, in in verse seven, there is this this unity 
between the two sections, right? It's not that we're, you know, uh, women have to act this way and husbands, you act this way. There is a jointness in this submission to all authority here. And this final authority, she also says, is really summed up in in verse eight as we get into Christ and his righteousness. Yeah, so let's let's just hit that quickly. And then I want to ask you about descending into the spirits. Oh, I thought you were going to ask about baptism. You saved like, by well, baptism. I, well, I mean, too, I talk about that too. It's kind of right after. But um, verse yeah. eight, if we're looking at structure, um, I hope many of you at home pick this up because rarely does the Bible get so clear. He says <laughs> in the NASB, he says, to sum this up or to sum up, all yeah. of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Um, just kind of when you take it all in, in stride, you've got servant, be, be submissive to every type of human institution. And then he gives a couple of examples. And then he says to sum up, just be brotherly to everyone. Be kind, mm. don't return insults. Um, and so it's, um, it's quite. And I think, I, I think in Bible study, it, you know, a lot of times we read forward and we are, we are constantly reading forward and we never go back. And it's okay when you get to a section that says, to sum it up, here's the main idea. It's okay to take that and then let it be the lens through which you go back and read, you know, the, the end of chapter two, the, the beginning of chapter three. Uh, don't be so forward-minded, I, I got to get through yeah. that we don't use these like clues and nuggets of, hey, here's what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it's like everything. It's like, look, here's folks. Here's what I've been saying all along about all of these <laughs> things, right? And I, and I think you know another context thing that's important about since I wrote a book about politics, it's really important for people to understand that you know what you tell people about your participation in a government that's under Caesar is a very different context than being in a republic like we live in, which is not at all what. There's, nobody's thinking about a place like the United States when they're talking about this text, right? So, so however people think about agency, I think it's, it's important to understand well, what was he saying there and why was he saying that? Well, because they were under suspicion. That's why. And and people were thinking, I know what you Christians are up to. They're, they're, and he even makes reference to it throughout the book about people who are basically, you know, spreading rumors, casting, you know, raising suspicion. Mm -hmm. uh, and and perhaps you know creating context of threat for them. Yeah. Hey, I want to pull us to the end of this chapter because I think um, many of the people at home they tracked through this. They got their structure. Um, they they yeah. all knew that it was Psalm 34 that Peter was uh, commenting on here in uh, verses uh, 10 through 12. That was a joke. Maybe you didn't know that, but you can go back and see those um, later. I did. <laughs> he makes a big transition using that text, and then he pushes the the question of, hey, who's going to harm you if you're doing good? And that idea of mm -hmm. doing what is good has been persistent this whole entire time. You see it there in um, uh, uh, verse 13, and then it just keeps going. Um, uh, you got verse 16, a good conscience. Verse uh, 16, good behavior. Um Mm -hmm. And uh, doing what is right, verse 17. And this is, the, this is because Christ did what was right. Christ did, he did good. He died for sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Um, and, then, and then we get to verse 19. And verse 19 is, uh, it's confusing, right? 
I, yes. I, I remember preaching through this five years ago um, when I first came to Bethel. And even on our pastoral team, we had four people preaching that Sunday. None of us knew what it meant. None of us. And we had 30 yeah. commentaries and whatnot. So I'm glad you're on the call. What does it mean? <laughs> yeah, no. we'll give a little more context well, here so he goes well I'm at fast you know because <laughs> and, now, and now you all get the definitive answer tonight you see yeah so right here 2495 it's very important to uh, not like what I was saying earlier to not abstract whatever he's saying here from what's mm-hmm. going between 18 and 22 and 22 of course goes all the way back to he mentioned at the beginning the fact that they're believing, you know, you're people who believe in this Jesus who's raised from the dead. You know, that's right there in the first verses. So he's talking about the exaltation of Christ between verses 18 to 22. And related to that exaltation of Christ is at least some kind of proclamation. Right yeah. about the fact that that that, that and it, because the, I mean the end here is, you know, resurrected, ascending to the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being subjected to Him. Yeah. So this it's, so this is you know really, Jesus has been brought low. You might argue in eighteen is exalted in twenty two, right? And part of what's going on in this exaltation is the declaration of. The fact that of, of, of who he really is uh it's interesting to look at different paraphrases and see how they paraphrase versus 19 because you know not all of them talk about it like it's a descent to hell there are other traditions that certainly do talk about it as a descent to hell and even then okay so does this mean he suffered does this mean he you know um you know, you know, if, if the thief on the cross is in paradise, where's Jesus while he's doing this? I mean, there's all those kinds of, of questions that, that are being asked, none of which this text would tell you. Hmm. Right? If I can interrupt for a second, we, we've um, taken a pass before on one of these difficult passages in chapter 1, yes. and it was things that angels long to look into, right? Your salvation... Yeah. And sure. part of what yeah. I said, and I took a little heat from a couple people for feeling a little too glib about this, but uh-huh. I called it a distraction. The text uh-huh. doesn't necessarily tell us, nor is the text pushing yes. us to figure that out. Right. It seems like there's a surface understanding that we can understand, but if we look in the broader context, I think what you just said, even the the context between 18 and 22, where you have this 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 humiliation to exaltation motif, which is a microstructure mm-hmm. within this text. It helps mm-hmm. us understand that. But I also think there's there, the word is inclusio. I don't, I'm not sure how perfectly this works out, but when angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, that's the same word as essentially sub, submission. They're in submission to Christ. And so mm-hmm. it, that brings us always back to 2.13, right? submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. If you are submitted to Christ as Lord, uh-huh. everything's submit, submitted to him. Therefore, uh-huh. it, it's possible for you to submit yourself to others, I think is, is half of his half of his argument. But we get... Well, and, and, go ahead. And also that, I mean, on the one hand, he's reaffirming that, look, whoever is in charge now is still under Jesus, regardless. And so 
the hope that we says you know, give an account of the hope that you have in you. This is why you can do it, right? Nobody else has been resurrected, mm. right? And uh, and so you know you so you can proclaim this story for, you know about a real the true story that that he's come died, you know, and 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 has been resurrected and is exalted, and he's the one that's you know if everybody's under him, then. You know, there's no reason for them to not be the people of integrity that he's telling them to be. Okay, in other words, if you're gonna take your cues from anybody, take your cues from the person that everybody else is bowing to, right? And the people who may not verbalize it now, one day they will, right? I mean, that's implicit in in the in the text. So, so so you know, it might get rough at times, but remember when it's rough, you know, what's the basis of your hope? I mean, the basis of your hope is in this exalted Jesus, not in your ingenuity, not in your ability to, you know, foment a rebellion, not in, uh, you know, trying to, you know, curry political favor or, or, or whatever. None of those things are, are going to be sufficient. So, so you need to re- re- retain your integrity of your commitment to Jesus and being the kind of people that he says uh, to be. So, you know, it's, it's almost like saying at 18, look, remember what you believe to begin with, right? The Jesus who's right. accomplished your reconciliation with God. And, you know, it, it's almost like verse 19, just to note something about it. It's almost like he's saying, to him, and you know what? It's kind of interesting, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. And by the reads, way. It, it, all yeah. of these yeah. things all, read almost like, a, oh, hey, did you know this? And did you know this? And did you hear this too? Yeah. But all of it mm-hmm. is yeah. subjected to him anyway. And so I just want you to know. Well, and, 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 and let me just say something about the baptism thing, because it does say baptism you saves you. Noah too. Right. Why, so, so let's talk about Noah first, because it's in that order. Why Noah? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, Noah also shows up in Second Peter, by the way, you know, in chapter three, interestingly, the flood shows up. <laughs> but, <kidding>. it does. <laughs> uh, but but um but but it's it's you know obviously a metaphor for when proclamation took place and mm. when people were everybody else around you thought that there was another way of, of living right and the people that who, who are the people that made it you know the people that run the ark are the ones who were saved everybody else you know is you know they perished by water but if you're, but but arguably, if you if you if you're also maintaining integrity, like Noah maintained integrity, you know, you you are the ones who are in the ark of safety, which is in the water. But how's that? So is it water of life or water of death for you? Well, it's water of life for them, right? It, it was obviously water of death for the people that were not committed to God. And it makes pretty clear when it says baptism which saves you. Also, it's not about. Uh, you know a, the fact of baptism. You know the physical. If you get, physicality. You get, yeah, yeah. But because there's a whole all the language about an appeal to God. You know, or appeal of, of a good conscience to God. In other words, I think there's another way of saying you're entrusting yourself to God. You're entrusting yourself to this Jesus who died to reconcile you to God. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's your belief that saves you, but it does tell us, and I think this is important because of what happens in some evangelical churches anyway, people react to, to you know, the scenario of somebody that went forward when they were 13 and it meant nothing. 
uh, or the person that was baptized as an infant, and you know, be like, well, I don't believe that's real baptism. Okay, fine, let's see. Uh, but th- then what they what, what they want is they want their commitment to be really, 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 really authentic, and then they get baptized, which is missing the point, because you can't escape that in the New Testament. People believing in getting baptized is about like, yep. No one's waiting around to say now. I feel like my commitment is quite what it's going to be because really, you know, you you, you continue to sort of grow into a greater under, you know, sort of resonance with that commitment throughout your Mm -hmm. life as part of your growth and discipleship, right? So, so, I mean, and baptism is a beginning. It's not an end, right? So I'm so glad you you said that because I... I think it's, the, it's this entry because a lot of people they're delaying. I'm like, you have no. It's like, who do you see in the Book of Acts that knew yeah. enough about what this thing was about? They, they were like, well, I really want to get baptized, but I want to wait until I know just a little bit more, so I'm going to get wet. Okay, this is not what these Gentiles were doing, right? Right, no. or these Jews. Right. So, I, so people, you know, when, when they heard the word, part of. I mean, believing in bapt- baptism, we're like really, really close. And, and the point I'm just making is that because it's, been t- it's typically close, you know, this isn't a text where really to fight about whether baptism does something. It's a text where baptism and belief are just close together, just like everybody's talked about it. So getting baptized is just kind of like part of what goes with saying that, you know, you're... You know, you, you you believe in the resurrection of Christ, and you're committing your life to God. Mm. It just it just all goes together, and and very often we 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 people separate them when really in the New Testament they're very close together. Yeah, which means drunkards were being dunked. Like absolutely, people all kinds from, of from sin to salvation to baptism, pretty much yeah. quickly. Face. And as a pastor, my heart yearns for us <laughs> to understand that because I think too many people disqualify themselves because they think exactly along those lines. I don't understand how all of this works. I, I don't understand all of these things. I'll wait until I do or I'll wait until something else uh, happens that makes me feel more committed. But I mean, if, if, they, if they, you know, it's like, look, you, you could be like – you know, the poster child of relapse, right? I mean, that you, it's your face beside the word relapse in the dictionary, right? But, but, if you're, but if you're the person that authentically believes this, then, you know, hey, believe, get wet. And yeah, you might literally stagger around like Keith Richards or somebody like for the next couple, like next decade or something. But if that's authentic and your trajectory is toward transformation, it just means, yeah, it's just kind of a messy transformative process. It's just more visible than what's going on internally and all the other people who are able to manage that, or at least manage it in public well enough, right, with whatever transformation is going on. I mean, only if you believe that baptism gives you instantaneous perfection, right, or reflects instantaneous perfection, then you should do it. Then, you know, okay, great, but good luck finding that in the Bible. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, Dr. Baker, you've given us way more than 15 minutes, and I so appreciate it. And if you can hang on for a couple more seconds, I want to pump your book again. Sure. Um, remember, everybody, we're giving away copies of The Political Disciple. I've got a bunch of them to give away. Uh, wonderful read, important read for a, a season especially now, and you've got time to read, so why not read something worthwhile? Um, I would love for uh, – Rebecca wants us to go down the uh, baptism route, but Rebecca, we're going to save that question for another day. I'm sorry to, to – 
Chelsea. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to ask. Well, maybe we could could do this. Second. Yeah, uh, I want you to. Uh, how about this? Let, let's, uh, Rebecca. I'm going to take that back. How about we just do a couple minutes? If you have a question for Doctor Baycoat, maybe yeah. give us another five ten minutes. Uh, totally. And and uh, I would love for you just to throw in a question. I'm in, I'm in my office. You're in quarantine. <laughs> How's that floor? Are there a lot of people quarantining in their offices with their books? I imagine. That. Yeah. No, you're it. You're the only one. I see. I've seen less than ten people total since really? since uh, lockdown. Yeah. Wow. I've people on campus, but and That's, people virtually committee meetings. It's kind of a dream, isn't it? I mean, you don't get interrupted. Uh, ever. It, if, if I was a, if I was like a poster child of introversion, yes. <laughs> It sounds so, great to uh, me. I'll, I'll, I won't lie. It sounds great to me. It's a it's a dream before someone says that you can't see anybody. You know, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. if you have a question for Dr. Baker, I'll give you a second to um, to just uh, pipe in here. Throw throw it in the chat. We'll give uh, just a few uh, opportunities for that. But Dr. Baker, I know um, you know I appreciate uh, the connection relationship we've been building and been able to use you as a sounding board uh, for current events. Um, for understanding evangelicalism uh, in a broader <laughs> context, right? Uh, we've had many conversations about that. Um, yes. And uh, uh, Eddie Rodriguez, who, who's awesome. <laughs> you would, Dr. Baker, you love Eddie. He, uh, he got saved on Easter a couple of years ago and just been growing. Wow. Eddie's kind of the guy that we were just talking about, honestly. And uh, <laughs> he gave his testimony at the five-year anniversary. He goes, I've got a question. What does it all mean? <laughs> <laughs> what is it all? Oh, okay. Um, Walk uh, with Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I um I want to I want to give you a chance because uh, you're writing a book right now, and I it, this is a closed group of people. This video is not going yeah. out publicly. It's just to the you know 500 people on our Facebook group can access this. Uh, right now, yeah. 27 people. Maybe another hundred will watch later. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd love to give like just get in your world of what you've been thinking about and working on over these past couple of, of weeks. I know you've been working on a project for a publisher. Um, mm -hmm. After everybody reads The Political Disciple, they'll want to read this next book that you're writing too. Um, can you give us anything about it? Uh, that's the Eschatology and Ethics book that should have been done a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Just took a pandemic. It's, uh, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> Put it that way. But uh, the, the simple thing with it uh, is how does uh, eschatology inform the way that we're looking at things like politics or race or business or, or even things like uh, disability? Um, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, to continue, you know, a theme I said earlier, the big thing is, is how does this particular belief, in fact, arguably you could say it's almost like an elaboration of chapter four of the political disciple, which is about eschatology and how that's particularly helping us think in certain ways about politics. Okay, um, so and, just pause for yeah. a second, because eschatology is one of those words that sounds like you're you you caught it, you know, the same way you got COVID. See, yeah, uh, basically, it's the study the of the end times or the last things, right? Yes, yes. Just to put yes. that out there for people, they often yes, people who grew up in my and, background think yeah. about raptures and things like that. Yeah. But it's really the vision uh, of that end time. There, there, that that may be in a footnote. Uh, but 
but but uh, because because really the rapture is connected to the larger question of Christ returning. Right. So you know what difference does it make that he's returning? What difference does it make that there's a judgment? What difference does it make that there's a bodily resurrection? Um, if you, if you believe those things, then how is that informing the way that you're going to be thinking about how you you live now? Uh, if 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 in the end, you know, all the people of God, every tribe and tongue and nation, are going to be together. Then, what is that? That's the future. But what does that mean uh, now in terms of how we're living? I think one of the one of the big things that I'm trying to emphasize throughout the book is what I would call uh, that our ethics or, or our the way that we act is um, not. And, I'm, and it's kind of like trying to cut this really thin. But I don't like to use language of establishing the kingdom. I do like to use language of reflecting yeah. the kingdom, yeah. uh, because reflecting the kingdom is still involves action, but it doesn't have that triumphalistic uh, dimension to, to it. it. Yeah, exactly. Where, where you know, if you just thought what I thought about politics or race or business or whatever, then everybody would see a perfect reflection of the kingdom of God. None of us sees clearly enough mm. to to have that kind of mindset. I always think, look, if Paul sees through a mirror darkly, okay. I'm not going to say, well, well, that's because Paul lived 2,000 years ago. I lived in the 21st century, so I'm good. Okay. It's like, no, you're, it's, right. it's like you're delusional is what it is. Right. <laughs> you're in your head. Uh, but, but, but I think we, there is enough language in the Bible about how we ought to live in view of the fact that the kingdom is coming. That on the one hand, you know, we, because we're made alive by the spirit, the spirit lives in us. And, you know, we, we, we're encountering a foretaste of the kingdom within the way that we live as a community, as individuals in the various dimensions of our lives ought to be in some ways giving at least some kind of uh, creating a, a kind of anticipation about, you know, something even better than what is being displayed is coming. But mm. what's being what is being said and what's being performed displays. You know, it, it kind of gives people a hint of of what is coming. It's very different than saying what I'm doing is, is showing you exactly what it's going to be like. So, uh, so but what it does, but I think it does mean that there is uh, a sense in terms of uh, the the what we the way that we talk to each other, the way that we uh, think about our political commitments, the way that we engage various issues um, all of that ought to have some dimension of it where what Christians do is you know it's, it's like when you see the trailer of a movie right it's not the whole thing right but it's, and some trailers yeah. of course you still don't know what the movie is going to be about right yeah. I mean uh, and then some trailers they're, they're misleading um, <laughs> I just have certain trailers in mind but <laughs> but but it's like what we're doing is kind of like coming attractions, which means that there's something there that gives you a hint. Yeah. Mm. But it, there's, it, there's no way that you know the, what the whole big picture of that thing is going to look like down there. But if there's enough of what we're doing and saying around these issues, then, you know, what, what we're showing people is the kingdom of God, you know, at least has this. The, these hints about it, uh, and and the idea, of course, is to uh, encourage people to, on the one hand, to recognize that eschatology isn't just about trying to figure out, okay, well, when's he coming back? I mean, if 
It's like if Jesus told them in Acts one, you can't know. Nobody needs to be asking. Okay, I mean, because they they had like front row seat. Uh, and if he said sorry, you can't know. Nobody else needs to be thinking. But he'll let me know, right? Okay, no need to set that aside. Uh, and and say, okay, we know that he is coming back. Yeah. And in the meantime, we've got mission in this world, uh, and part of that yeah. mission. It, it means being this. Everybody I mean, use the language of aroma, coming attractions, etc. So, so the idea is to give for there to be a something uh, to to at least be a gesture, right? Uh, rather than saying, "Here's like what the whole architecture of the future is." So, I'm assuming you don't have your book's not chock full of charts that are fanciful and detail every single element of re- revelation. Uh, no. Oh. I yeah, can that's probably not some gonna if you need some. I got some in my office that are old that I don't actually <laughs> use, but I think they're cute. So. Yeah, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I'll send you an email. Okay, <laughs> hey, we've got uh, what you've been talking about. Uh, Laura asked us this question. She and yeah. this is kind of dovetailing already. I think with the book that Laura, I'll make sure you get a, a copy of the book because I think it'll answer that. But um, she says, how do you interact with politics in such a polarized culture? I think she's getting to the, to, to the notion of today's day and age is so charged. And she says this, mm-hmm. uh, assuming that our allegiance needs to be to Jesus first mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. party. Um, mm-hmm. Would you have any, that's an ethics question. Would you have any advice for us? And I know that's a huge topic that yes. is almost uh, a million dollar question these days. Yeah, first thing I would say is most politics is boring and very unsexy. So what people are polarized about are about certain particular things and what somebody's tweeting about or Facebooking about or whatever. But 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 go look and see what, what your mayor is doing or what the state house is doing and look at everything that they're doing and tell me how much of that people are being really divisive about. Most people don't even know what that is, right? Uh, and, but those things do matter, and, and they would really matter to people if nothing got done with those things. So political engagement is a, is a lot about that very unsexy engagement. And actually what I would say about if our allegiance is to Jesus, then that means we're going to obey him, which means love God and love neighbor. Engagement in politics in a country like ours is one of the ways that you can actually be, 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 think about loving your neighbor kind of indirectly. Because the way you vote, uh, whether you write, if, if there's something that's a matter of major public concern, if, if enough people write to somebody about that, then they might pay more attention to that. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's not first about partisanship unless you're partisan to Jesus, okay? Uh, I think uh, people, uh, you know, when, when they're thinking about, well, if I'm a Christian, then of course I should vote with one party or another. The fact is, is that there is no party that is devoid of compromise or that is going to be imperfect. Um, so whatever you're thinking about political ends, you shouldn't be thinking about politics being something that is accomplishing the, the fullness of the kingdom. Uh, but but if you're in a country like the United States, unlike being in a setting like you're in a First Peter, the thing is that because you're a citizen, you have you have agency to participate in the in the in pub, the public in certain ways to help um, 
you know, orient society in certain directions. And I guess the thing I would say is that, so if you're committed to Jesus, you don't make too much of it, but you recognize there's an opportunity to uh, seek the good of not just yourself, but the good of others. Uh, and and I think that just, but that's not t- the way that we tend to think about it. I think also what's also the case that if you're really committed to Jesus and, you, and this Jesus who's exalted above everything, then you shouldn't be fearful. Uh, and way too many Christians are characterized by fear as if God is somehow unable to manage history. Right. Uh, so, what are talking about? Yeah. So yeah. If, if he, I think, I think, I think the resurrection, you know, kind of indicates that God can handle uh, what's going on with history. So, so but, 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 yeah. but it, it, you can raise a lot of money by scaring people. Uh, so, <laughs> And there's some Christians for another day. We don't have time to dive down that rabbit hole, but 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 the reason I say that is because there are people in both in both parties and in more French parties that do that. Yep. Uh, So they scare people around that. Uh, And my point isn't that. So so what about the polarization? What I would say is ask yourself how you can love your neighbors, And ask yourself how even if a person seems to you politically odious, are you willing to think about actually praying for that person rather than praying against their causes? And, you know, uh, I think very often we, we, we depersonalize others. I mean, in fact, I think you know, a, a classic example is this. Look, if there is a gay couple on your street and they got a kid and that kid's given them all kinds of problems with discipline. And they ask you about parenting advice. You're going to say, sorry, I disagree with gay marriage. Good luck. Is that what you're going to say? You know, I hope it's not what you're going to say. Right. I hope because they're human beings, you're going to try to help them, you know, to be better parents. Because whatever you think about the strange kind of familial situation that that is, um, you have an opportunity to, you know, to care for somebody. I mean, what, what would you want somebody to do if you were a parent in trouble? You know, would, would you want somebody that was more wise about that to help you to, to, to you know, be better, to, to navigate that better? I, I hope you would. And if you were that so, kid, right, you'd want, you want help, right? You want your parents to do it yeah. right. Yeah. 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 And, and the point about that is, is that, I mean, human beings are complicated, right? People are not just re- reduced to political party or one issue, et cetera. They have families. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on. Most people, when they're reacting to other people, especially in social media, they know probably less than one percent of what a person is, and think, but they think they know you know ninety to one hundred percent of what a person is. No, when really it's like, well, yeah. what I, I like, what do I know about your family? You know, and none of this means that therefore I, that you can't ever criticize anybody or state opinions of disagreement. Right. It's just that I think. Um, I have to recognize that however I'm doing that, my aim in the end is to seek the good of people, right? So, uh, you know, I mean, there's no asterisk besides neighbor, right? Neighbor isn't just people that agree with me. So uh, I need to be seeking the good for everybody. I I think it would be great if Christians were known for people that really are seeking the good of everyone. But that's not their reputation. Yeah. Yeah. You said so much there, and I. Um, what about that baptism? Yeah, yeah. Let's go back I mean, to the spirits in prison. No, so there is a, there is a baptism question. Uh, I, I just want to say I want to say briefly how much I appreciate. So you just rattled off a bunch of complex um, thinking about what we typically make simple problems. We oversimplify to our detriment. 
but you just showed a, a depth of nuance and um, deep thinking. And I want to, I want to just go on record saying thank you for thinking about stuff like that. Thank you for being in the in the theological space. That um, I know this is your calling and your career to do such, but um, I think sometimes academics get a bad rap for being too ethereal. But I also think what you just modeled is a, is a way for us to um, to put our assumptions to the side and to think a little, just a, just go one level deeper on that question or that topic or that issue. And so, um, I just appreciate uh, how you modeled that for us. Let's let's talk about baptism. This will be the last question of the night. I mean, and- but it was but because you mentioned it like before the other question. It's like in the back of my mind, like, what was that question? Don't worry. You know, about I got the questions here. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. Rebecca knows her question. Uh, yeah. So the question the question was this, and I'll throw this on the broadcast here. She says, as a parent, uh, what about baptism in reference to kids? And Dr. Baker, I'll let you know quickly about Bethel's uh, recent actions, and many people in our, our um, feed already know what we've done in this regard. I just want to give that to you mm-hmm. so that if you criticize us, you do so knowing that you're criticizing us and you just throw us under the bus. Uh, so so oh, don't want to see you up. It disappeared. So it says, what about in reference to kids? As a parent, here's the question. Should we wait until we feel our kids understand what they're saying before we let them get baptized? Or if they believe as a parent, is it okay for us to let our kids get baptized? Now, let me give the Bethel disclaimer. Um, we have recently, and do Scott, you got to help me out here because I don't remember the age. Yeah. But there's an age. There's some 11. arbitrary age. I don't remember what it is. It's like 10, 13, 7. 11. Sure. It's 11. Is it, oh. is it really 11? Yeah. Right. 11. Yeah, it's 11. Perfect. Okay. okay. Um, so the 11-year-old is what we're discouraging parents from even having their kids get um, baptized until that moment. And the reason that we went with a number and whatnot is is because we want to actually instill the discipleship value that parents have these conversations with their kids. Yes. And we don't want to sure. just blow past some gospel understanding. And it's less for us about does the kid understand it? Because uh-huh. Scott and I can sit down with a kid and ask them questions and ask them for fruit and try and see and discern and say, okay, we think to the best of our knowledge, you, you're, you should be baptized. You're a good candidate for baptism. But it's more to to provide opportunities for parents to have these important formative conversations with their kids. That's the heart behind why we have an age. I, I always want to say that because otherwise it sounds like we're just petty and we don't believe that any kid could truly be saved. So that's kind of how we're dealing with it. But but it's a great question. And this is one that I wrestle with as a pastor. I, honestly, I'll, I'll throw my cards on the table. I wrote a dissenting opinion to our elders saying, I don't think that we should put a restriction on baptism because it was essentially the argument that I made was chapter and verse it for me. Where is this in scripture? And I have gladly supported this decision. And I just think I did a good job articulating why we are going this direction. And so I don't want to say that to the detriment of our people at at our campus thinking, oh, this is a terrible thing. But there are two sides of this. And I think what Rebecca's getting at in her question is, as a parent, the church can tell me one thing, and maybe you're saying belief in baptism immediately, but I've got kids that I'm raising. Should Mm -hmm. I wait until they can articulate back the gospel Mm -hmm. and their understanding, or how would we think about that? Yeah. Uh, So the short answer would be, uh, one, I think it, when you're, especially when you're part of a larger church, um, 
giving a guideline can be probably a way that you can help people to think about their approach to formation and their families. Uh, and uh, so, so I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad idea, especially when uh, we have less rather than more biblical literacy. Uh, so, and, and there's all kinds of other narratives that people have about what they think being a Christian is and they, and, and it's confused actually. So, um, and in a way, uh, going with an age like 11 almost makes you like a church that just believes in confirmation. Uh, so, uh, so basically, you know, you child to really confirm that belief when they're getting wet, uh, and to publicly confirm it. Uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, so what I, what I would say is, um, are you preparing your child and helping your child to be formed so that there's someone that can make um, a age-appropriate articulation uh, of, of gospel? Now, you know, what if you say, well, my kid's a genius. <laughs> well, your kid's exceptional. Uh, <laughs> is what I would say. Because <laughs> most people of any age are not geniuses. So geniuses and savants aside, okay? Yeah. Uh, most people, um, you know, the, yeah, there's people who say, I believed when I was three or four, etc. cetera. Um, the fact is, is that think about all the people you know that may have become Christians when they were children, and then they talk about when they had some big recommitment or some big growth in knowledge that happened in their life. Uh, and they wonder whether this was their real conversion, etc. It probably was not. Uh, but I just point that out just to say that uh, we have to understand that what's happening with baptism and conversion is this in-the-door type of thing in a certain way. Uh, and is taking responsibility for membership, really. Uh, not unlike, uh, to bring another religion, not unlike a bar bought mitzvah. Right. Uh, so where where the child has been doing all this learning and now, you know, you're, 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 you're stepping into a level of, under, you're saying you're stepping to a level of understanding and responsibility uh, that, and, and that you'll be growing more to that kind of adult on knowledge and responsibility. So I think that there is, uh, I've as well articulated an understandable reason uh, for doing that. Uh, I think, again, I think the, the, the big thing is focusing on formation. I mean, if you, you know, uh, what if somebody says, well, I mean, trust me, this kid has been begging to get baptized since they were like five, right? And then a family decides, look, uh, we are committed members of your church, but our kids go to a church summer camp somewhere else, right. and they do baptisms at On the that last camp. day, and the worship <laughs> yeah. is to dunk them in the lake. So, so, we told them, it's your choice. You go ahead. <laughs> and so the kid comes back, and they got wet, right? So, I mean, that that's 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 a judgment call, right? I, I wouldn't make a big deal out of that. So, I but think I think what you're... It's wisdom to uh, thinking about um, a formation process uh, and parents being part of that formation process, uh, so that so that so that that the confession that attends baptism uh, has um, some, uh, I would say, appropriate knowledge to it. I like how you're helping us think about baptism less as the finish line or the goal of our faith or the completion of our sanctification, 
and more of the starting line. It's 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 it's, it's, it's gateway. It's always been initiation. It's yeah, always exactly. been a right of initiation. It's how you start exactly. by showing people you follow this rabbi exactly. or teacher or whomever. We kind of co-opted this in Christianity. And yeah. um, we just kept it going because Jesus told us to. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I definitely appreciate that. I think as a parent, there's definitely a wisdom element in here. Um, you're, you're not, we've always tried to say you're not ruining your your kid's life by forcing you know we don't want you to force them to get baptized but by allowing them to get baptized younger i Mm -hmm. i've often told parents you're gonna have to reinforce in their mind and heart at some point down the road when they're 16 or 26 that you did believe and i was there and we talked about this and i this desire you have to get baptized again is actually yeah. not something you need to do because you made your profession and maybe you've walked out life in a less than holy way or you've in your mind come back from a season of wandering but you don't yeah. need to symbolize that in your own heart in some sense you you're asking to re-crucify christ you're you're really needing to go back and say no i i am sealed i am uh, mm-hmm. uh saved and so no well, one the we thing is, it, we always have these things to coach. Should be baptized every time you have a big recommitment in your life. I mean, is, is this what you're going to do? It's like, well, well, some people. Well, ask. it's been years, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I've just had an awakening around something. And I feel like I just understand salvation. I really get it for the first time. I'm gonna get wet. Okay, I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's the way I think about that. It's like, no, that's uh, called growth, and I, I, I do think. Un- Understanding that this is you're moving into participation in life in the church and growth, and that growth, you know, has different rates and all kinds of things that one contends with. And so I think part of it that there needs to be the clarification around that that baptism should should be you know your arrive. It's kind of like an arrival at the beginning. Yeah, an arrival at the beginning. That's like an NT right statement you just made. <laughs> it's like I think life said, after death, after that. life, or whatever he says for resurrection, yeah. Oh, eternal life. life yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. yeah. Dr. Bacon, I asked you for 10 minutes. <laughs> and I cool. appreciate Thank and you. I still appreciate you. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of things, uh, you're one of my formative professors, become a good friend, and I uh, appreciate your wisdom. Uh, a bunch of people are just saying thanks uh, on the chat feed here. Sorry you can't Great see that in Skype. Um, Hi, everyone. Nice to see you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you for taking time. You've always been so generous with uh, what you um, what you have and, and what you have to give. And so thank you for, for being with us here today. And um, I appreciate that. And hopefully we can uh, catch up and grab lunch at some point when restaurants in Illinois are open. When the liberation happens, yeah. You guys are on yeah. lockdown forever, it seems like. I mean, Indiana, we're... They were you know, yesterday. Uh, they said that it is uh, it is flattening, thankfully. But uh, yeah. I think one of the big problems uh, is that you know uh, somebody wrote an article the other day. They said you know American exceptionalism is part of the reason why everything is going longer than it is because uh, this independent American spirit means some people are going to conform, or other people are like you will you will not tell me what to do, <laughs> uh, and. You know, I I understand that. I also understand that uh, you you never know who you know who's susceptible because exactly. mo- it's yeah. generally certain demographics. 
but there are other people there's nothing that would have given you any idea that they were going to get you know uh, wrecked by the, the, the four or five percent of people that that it you know that i mean it, it messes with i mean it's i mean it's horror stories for those people yeah. and and, yeah. and that and it, it, it's a very you know the spanish flu was rough for everybody right this is so it's it's really hard for people to deal with i just yeah. wish that most people would just say you know i don't know i'm uncertain and so what you see me doing is my my flailing attempts to control the fact Something. that I can't deal with uncertainty right, right now. Right. So and so I'm going to be angry or I'm going to do whatever or I'm going to make claims that are unsubstantiated or whatever because no this is my that way. self-aware though. No one's that self-aware <laughs> and that humble to say, "Hey, we're hitting an unprecedented time that nobody knows what's know. going on." I, I, which I, means I, 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 so I don't know what's going I, I, on. I realize I, I know. I I've latched out by starting a <laughs> podcast. That's what I've done. Yeah. <laughs> this is my rebellion. That's how you spell. Is, uh, Church is Now Online is the name of our podcast. And we've talked to some I, people who are working I, with COVID patients and uh, yeah. uh, have, have um, had COVID themselves and been hospitalized. And it's a crazy world. So one of these days, yep. something's going to happen. It and it's going it to uh, allow us it, it, to it, enjoy it, a burger together. Yes, yes, it will be history one day. Hopefully, sooner than later, yeah. uh, because I mean, you know, because you know, even with what I just said, I mean, I, I have to fight to not get frustrated with people that are very certain about what institutions like mine should be doing in August and September, or people who know for sure. Well, I'll tell you. Well, it's just not going to whatever. It's like you don't know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> nobody knows. I mean, that's, that's the whole point. You know. Yeah. It's like. If you if you want to say, here's some scenarios. I wonder if it might work work out that way. It's very different, but yeah. there are a lot of people who we'll I think it's just their in the classroom in August. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think there are people who are too Maybe. too too confident about the positive and the negative. Yeah, it's like it's like just admit that you're guessing. <laughs> I, I realize. Look, I'm a, I'm asking too much. I know that. <laughs> you are. But that, that, and- that's that. But Bacodian idealism. Chant a man hope. Bacodian idealism. That's going to be a thing. You know, we yeah. we're we're coming with humility to the text, just in the same way that you know we're coming to humility with our situations in life. But I think today we um, can have some certainty to know this is the arc of what Peter was saying. And uh, thanks for helping us discern that. Uh, I think a good rule for us in is all things humility. So um, thank you, Dr. Right. Bacot. I'm going to turn off the, uh, Facebook Live here, and um, we'll see right. you guys next week.